everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show, our 65th episode of this edition of the Bloke and the Bird Show, which is important because this is actually the second time that we have brought around the Bloke and the Bird Show, and that time we ended for a couple of reasons at 65 episodes. So next week, we will be forging into new territory, never before seen, Bloke and the Bird episode count numbers. Actually, we will probably not be doing it next week, because there is a very strong chance that we're going to run out of time over the weekend next weekend. Actually, I think it's almost guaranteed that we're going to run out of time. We have more things to do than we have weekend to do them in next weekend. Yeah, next weekend is the Honda Indy 200 at Mid-Ohio where we intend on probably spending the better part of the weekend there, in addition to the fact that it's also the German Grand Prix at Hockenheim. And I don't know when we're going to get to watch that. Oh, and yet there's more, because apparently the car show circuit got this message that the 31st of July was the best day to hold car shows, and there is a uh, Euro car show up at the uh, German culture club or something in oh that's right that we will be attending i believe sometime late are we actually attending well it's a small show we might we might place okay but i gotta get the times versus the times of the indie race because we may have to be running home to do a car swap and then there's washing involved and yeah i i know it's just insane Sanity. Now, speaking of Indy, if you have liked our Facebook page, you know that we were down at Mid-Ohio this past Thursday for IndyCar testing and um, got some pictures and, and got to spend some time on the pit wall during the session, up above the garages as they were repairing stuff. We had some incidents that occurred in front of us. We had all kinds of stuff that was happening. It was actually a lot of fun, really laid back. I mean, just incredibly laid back experience at the track. Well, considering we actually spent some time um, hanging out in one of the team's tents on the pit wall. Okay, granted, they weren't there yet, though. But still, we, we were in their tent hanging out, enjoying the shade, watching the work get done to Scott Dixon's car, who was just in front of us. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And we have to beef up our ability to spot drivers. I mean, beyond the fact that they're wearing a race suit. um, Because that's one, That's well, that was the only way we knew they were drivers is they had race suits on. Um, But I want bonus points, the gold star for the day, for pointing out Juan Pablo Montoya. Yes, you did spot him. We did not see... uh, Alexander Rossi. We didn't see him at all. It did not look like... His entire team made an appearance, from what I could tell. I thought Andretti was there, but in a very small presence. Yeah, n- not nearly to the level that uh, um, the Penske team was. Yeah, there was an entire zone that was Team Penske. Um, I have to say, I got you know how I get fascinated by odd things mm-hmm. at these types of events. I got fascinated by the interconnected 18-wheelers. See, I thought that was really neat, too, even though our son was kind of like, whatever. Now, as neat as that was, and their trailer situation was, and their entire pit lane setup was, you compare that this weekend, um, especially if 
those of you who got to see the Channel 4 coverage from the UK, and the, the time they spent in the team's hospitalities. Yes. Now, granted, we didn't see inside the trailers, but considering the trailers also double as their garages and transporters, and their catering was done in the garages at Mid-Ohio, which are not the sleek, pretty whatever setups that you see over in Formula One. They're roughly a Boy Scout camp in comparison. Yeah. They have the amenities of the average Boy Scout camp. But the catering was done in there. And, you know, for a Formula One team, they have a whole staff on hand to staff their hospitality, including chefs, which are supposed to be fairly world-renowned and all of this other stuff, where most of the teams that appeared... Their catering came from Olive Garden. Well, at, one at team Mid-Ohio. used Olive Garden. Another team no, used— No, it was more than one. There were several teams that had Olive Garden bags in there. Oh, well, I was noticing um, the little old lady um, who was probably <laughs> as wide as she was tall, and she was probably only about four feet tall, um, stocking the cold cuts from Giant Eagle. Yeah. Um, on the table, and my favorite part of that was the giant tubs of coleslaw and— um, potato salad that nobody ever eats when they go to the family mm-hmm. picnic and somebody, you know, Aunt Mary has to bring this tub of stuff that came off the shelf at Giant Eagle. Um, nobody ate it there either, just FYI. The other thing that amused me, mm-hmm. one of the mechanics had his cookies, this is going to sound crazy, in his toolbox. <laughs> so he had his toolbox sitting on, and, you know, he obviously had, it was a, it was one of the cold cut type deals so he had his sandwich sitting on the plate but stuck in the corner of his uh toolbox wrapped in a a napkin (laughs) was his two cookies that he had you know taken from the line i just was amused by that i mean like i said it's the little things that really stand out to me of course i was shopping toolboxes (laughs) while i was there um i really think that team was it it wasn't team penske that had the it was hinchcliffe's team it's hinchcliffe's team that i was really drooling over their toolboxes um i think i the the uh what are we calling our mg the mascot the official it it is the official 1970s era british sports car of the bloke in a bird show okay yes (laughs) that um aka known as claire she needs one of those nice toolboxes in the corner of our garage now that you've created space for me to have a workshop you know you should have approached one of the mechanics from the team and asked them for recommendations i should have maybe during practice on thursday maybe i'll do that i couldn't help but admire your toolbox yeah i'm sure that they never hear that (laughs) pardon me sir you have a very nice toolbox (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you think you could show me around your toolbox? <laughs> yeah, that that could go very much wrong. Yeah. I don't think I'm young enough or, you know, showing enough skin to get away with. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me, mechanic, sir. <laughs> hey, the other thing I, should, I, I wanted to call out, even though I'm pretty sure that nobody who really matters is listening to the show, I, I do feel the need to call this out. Because this week was also, unless you were living in a box, it was the Republican National Convention here in Cleveland, Ohio. And among other things, I learned some things. And we'll get to them in a little bit. But I learned some things watching this. Time out. You learned things? I I learned something. 
Oh, wow. Okay. I learned I'm, something. I'm anxious. Now I'm but, on the edge of my seat. The, the first thing I do think is very, very important to call out because in all honesty, a lot of folks were expecting a ton of trouble to happen around the convention. And there was not a lick of it. But the other thing from watching all the media coverage and everything is really got to call out the efforts of the Cleveland Police Department and the various departments that came in to assist them. But it's notable for Cleveland because it wasn't all that long ago that they were in a ton of trouble for how they handled a lot of tense situations. Mm -hmm. um, and they're actually operating under an increased level of oversight from the federal government and from the state as well over some of their practices. And I got to say, they handled all of the various sticky situations. There were a few that popped up flawlessly. I mean, it was textbook in how they pulled this stuff off. And I think they have done a better job than a lot of cities have done in the past. Well, you know, there was so much ramp up towards the convention, comparing this convention to Chicago of 68, where there were literally riots outside of the mm -hmm. convention. Well, they and had no plans. They didn't know anything about these kind of things then. Oh, well, and, and quite frankly, the police department inside the convention laid the gauntlet down. Yeah, they did. Um, there were some big missteps that happened in 1968 that um, I think subsequent conventions have definitely learned from. But one of the things when everybody, every news outlet, every place was really predicting that we had a powder keg and somebody just needed to bring a, a match to it. Um, and that Cleveland was going to have a problem. I mean, it wasn't even like what, that it was an if, it was mm -hmm. a when. And for them to, I want to say the number of arrests was under 50. Um, I mean, they really handled a lot of potentially powder keg situations with a diffusing mechanism that was phenomenal. Yeah. And it makes our city truly look great. And I think that that's, that's the win for Cleveland as a whole. But I think, again, it's also very notable in the fact that this is a department that has been under fire for how it has handled situations and handled cases with a response that in many cases has been considered beyond over the top. Yeah. And came away from this, I mean, th this was an example of how to do things right. It mm -hmm. truly was. And I'm very proud of our city. I really am proud of our city. Do you know that the biggest uh, failing was not anything that happened in Cleveland? It was actually the day after the convention when people were trying to leave, and they were canceling flights at Hopkins because. But it wasn't Hopkins. It, it wasn't was, Hopkins. It, it was, was Southwest. Southwest. Yeah. But I just want to point out that that's the biggest negative story that came out of the, the convention outside the walls of the convention. Let and me put and it the thing to mention about Hopkins is that the number of travelers that went through Hopkins was about 2,000 people higher than what they see on Thanksgiving. on Thanksgiving, which is their busiest travel day. Right. So, I mean, incredible experience. Um, very happy that none of us had to go downtown through it. Yeah. So... As much as I tend to, and we both try to really avoid politics, I learned something this week, as you'll see throughout the show, because according to everything that happened at the convention, all of our problems, all of the problems here are President Obama's fault. And you'll see this as we go through this week, how everything is his fault.
Wait a minute, wait a minute. Are we going to solve F1 by getting rid of Obama in office? I don't know, but that that's from listening to this past week, that that's what it sounds like. So so you know, we'll jump in this week with with the first bit of news that um, you know, we heard rumors Monisha Keltenborn came out and said our financial problems are resolved a few weeks ago and everyone said, "Yeah, okay, whatever." <laughs> because you've said this before. And then it turned out to be an imaginary um, Russian financier who had no money. Um, all of those things. But we have gotten official word this week that Sauber has, in fact, secured their financial future. The team has been sold and purchased by Longbow Finance SA, which is, I believe, a French company. Um, they are retaining Monisha as team principal. However, as part of the deal... Peter Sauber, who the team is named after, will be stepping down and retiring. Now, now he has wanted to retire for a while. Yeah, and I, I don't blame him for wanting to retire. But I want to understand, did the buying company confirm that Monisha can now count seats? They have not. They have confirmed that she will be remaining in her current position. The thing I've got to wonder and it kind of ties into our next story as well, or, or the, the next topic that we're going to move to as well, is this is not an automotive company. This isn't a company that is well has a well-known brand. This is a finance company. Finance companies in F1 don't necessarily mix really well. And because the they do tend to like to make money, and F1 doesn't seem to be a money-making operation exactly and the one that i call out is jenny i financial who owned lotus good point good point but again as i have learned all of these financial issues they're president obama's fault all right i need to know how you're making that connection because i might remind you that f1 is historically a european brand doesn't matter um, F1 has only one team that comes out of the United States, and Doesn't they have matter. nothing to do with Ginny I Financial or the sale, sale, sale of Sauber. Doesn't matter. Um, his policies, whatever they were, they were detrimental to Formula One, and it's his fault. I told you. I learned this. Okay. I'm not entirely sure that it has been documented that either President Obama or his wife, Michelle, have ever attended or know what F1 is. It's not a basketball team. Th but there is a race in the United States, and that's all it takes. It's in November. So? It hasn't happened yet. <laughs> anyway, so the hope is that um, Longbow brings enough financial resources and... Enough of an, ab an ability to absorb losses to secure Sauber's success. I honestly, I have my doubts. I, I, my sneaking suspicion is that they are going to finish the year, and then Longbow is going to look to liquidate things. Sell or possibly parts. change the direction of the organization. Well, now... Just as an interesting thought. Okay. And, and this is total speculation based on absolutely no research. And, and I say that, you know, th this is theory on my end, but. What are the chances that um, 
this financial group is looking at the success, truly the success that Haas Racing has had. Now, um, here's my thought. If, um, if Haas has a three-year wait before they see any dollars come in, mm-hmm. Sauber is no longer in that wait period. If Sauber was to change the direction of their uh, manufacturing and ultimately do as Haas did, find a partner that's on the grid that's doing really well and buy everything they could possibly buy from them, they could actually be bringing in money next year. Yeah. So their window is shorter. So the financial group, if they know what they're doing in theory – they have bought themselves out of having a three-year wait for dollars. Does that make sense? I, I think it's less that, and it's more the thought of, well, you know, CVC came in and has been making money hand over fist. Now, granted, they control a completely different aspect of the sport than what Longbow will have. But I think that's, I think that's more of what the myth is that has brought them in. But I, or I, their CEO is a massive F1 fan, and it's to his dedication to the sport that he wants to be a part of it. I mean, for all we know, he's got a son that wants to race, and he's got he's buying a seat. I mean, that's... It, it, it could be. I, I, I seriously question their motives. I, I don't know if this is long-term going to be a deal that is actually going to save Sauber, but it may at least get them through the year. Well, you know it's going to be a long-term good thing if they have long in their name. Oh, there you go. That's See? it. I'm using the same logic you're going to use. Okay. Um, Felipe Nasser, the one who brings the branding to the Sauber car in the form of Banco de Brazil and their deep pockets, he says he wants some clarity on Sauber's future before making a decision on what he's going to be doing for 2017. Good and point. I don't blame him. Smart kid. Now, as I mentioned, my my skepticism when it came to a financial company coming in and and backing a Formula One team, word came out this week that Lotus F1 recorded a loss of 57 million pounds in 2015, their final year. Ouch. Now, when they were having their success with Kimi, and with Roman, what, two years earlier? Mm-hmm. There was a lot of talk that this was a team that was punching above its weight, that Jenny I was throwing a lot of money into the team to buy this success, and we're, we're, and we're spending at a level that was not sustainable for the team. Okay. And it sure looks like that was the case. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, keep in mind that last year they couldn't make payroll quite a bit either. Yeah. Payroll, pay for tires, food. Their yeah, own hospitality suite. Yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah. Hey, in Silverstone? Yeah. Like a groundhog coming out of its hole at winter, VJ Malia came out of hiding. <gasps> yes, he did. Mainly because he's, he's stuck in England because his passport's been taken away from him. So yeah, VJ Malia came out from hiding because well, the race came to, the race came to him essentially. Um, he says because you know we we questioned whether or not VJ's financial stylings and legal issues around his financial stylings 
might have an impact on the team. And Vijay says that the witch hunt is of no threat to Sahara Force India. Now, how Sahara is still on the side of the car, I can't even tell you at this point. It's because they don't have the money to take the decal off yet. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, the first time that he was seen in the paddock was at the British Grand Prix. Um, just a reminder of what his problems are. Authorities in India are chasing Malia for a $900 million uh, or $900 million pound um, debt that they claim he owes in the wake of the collapse of one of his former businesses, which, by the way, was on the side of the, the car for many, many years, Kingfisher Airlines. Not to be confused with Kingfisher Beer, which is also on the side of they, – they just left Kingfisher on there. and Well, no, now it's the beer. It's not the airline. But it's the same logo. Um, Vijay says that I've been through this before. My first, my first brush with the investigative authorities was in 1985. They came at me hammer and tongs for almost two years and finally found nothing, and I was completely exonerated. So sadly in India, these investigative agencies are political tools that do not hesitate to go on a wild goose chase, and in the process, it is nothing but persecution. There is no other way I can describe what is happening other than a witch hunt. I just have to ride out the storm. He says he is prepared to fully cooperate with any investigation, but his presence in, is required in India, which is impossible when he is unable to travel. He said they have access to, to uh, my executives of Kingfisher Airlines, and they have had access to thousands of, of documents. If the missing link is only to interview me, come to London and interview me. Get on the radio conference and interview me. Send me an email with questions and I will reply. I have nothing to hide. Except, you know, going to India where they might actually lock him up. Wow. Going to the embassy where they might actually lock him up. Exactly. Yeah. But he says that this, this is not a problem. He also says that their sponsorship is up significantly. Okay. That's what he says. Now, is, are these other interestingly financially styled businesses of VJ Malia's that are increasing their sponsorship? I believe so because I believe some of, um, well, a good chunk of his sponsorship is related to uh, Diageo, the uh, beverage company, which he has a role in. Of course. Yeah, or he did have a role in, or there were some transactions around him and Diageo. Excellent. Yeah. So, that out of the way, I guess it's time to talk about Silly Season. And I gotta say, we were expecting, and we've mentioned this before, we were expecting big things from Silly Season this year. Everybody was gonna, there was gonna be an ultimate musical chairs of all of the seats in all of the, the race teams this year. And this week, I think we've kind of confirmed that there won't be any. Well, yes. At the, at the top-tier teams, there won't be any. Let me put it that way. Yeah. Nothing's moving there. But did sh are you going to go through the Perez thing? Um, we'll get to that in a sec. Okay. Um, the, the, I think the final nail in the coffin, or, or, or the, the real big sign that there were, wasn't going to be any change at all, 
was last week the the announcement that uh, Ferrari had extended Kimi's contract for another year. Yep, we got one more year with Kimi. And as a result, we then this week got word, and it shouldn't have been much as a surprise because once the the Ferrari seat went away, there was nowhere left to go. Um, Word came that uh, Mercedes had extended Nico Rosberg's deal through 2018. Which is just another year. No, it's two years. It's two, it's two years. years. Sorry. And w- but it also means now that Lewis Hamilton and Nico will theoretically be paired up up until 2019. Well, as long as they can play nice with each other. That's going to be the big question. Now, I, I can see on one hand... Nico's position in wanting this two-year deal. I mean, it is a guaranteed seat at a highly competitive team. Although the rules are about to change, and who knows. But on the other hand, it's also a guaranteed seat at a highly competitive team where as much as he wants to be the number one driver, he keeps losing out in that battle to be the number one guy. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, there's no seat... In any team, even if, like, the Ferrari team was open, that he'd still be the number two driver. No, there, there, there's no seat where he would be the number one driver. There's no seat where he would be the number one driver. But even if we could pretend that there were seats at the top-tier team available, which there aren't, mm-hmm. the driver that the teams would keep are still better than Rosberg. What appear to be better than Rosberg. Right. Okay, let's put it that way. Let's leave it that way. At least on paper, based on their history and their record. Now, side by side, I don't know. True. But, yeah, there, there was nowhere for him to go. I mean, the only options, potentially, maybe Williams, which he's had a history at Williams. But, again, if he wants to stay in a top-tier team... Williams isn't quite there. There's potentially a seat coming available at McLaren, but that's not going to be a top-tier team next year. It's unlikely. Yeah, the rules change could shuffle things up. And don't forget, we do have the predictions that the person that's going to beat Mercedes is McLaren. Yeah. Yeah, that's the claim. So there's not much left at the top tier for him. Yeah. No. And even if Kimi didn't sign, I don't think that Ferrari would have looked at him as being the number one driver, even in year one. No, not at all. So he he's, he's kind of stuck. And I think that Rosberg, while a phenomenal driver, and I don't want to miss that point. I know I have very negative things to say about him because, you know, he fights with Lewis. And I'm not shy about saying that my loyalties lie with Lewis, I don't want to miss the fact that he's a very, very good driver. Heck, in 2014, 2013, 
the first year that there was the Lewis Nico pairing, mm-hmm. you were calling out that you thought that Nico was an extremely underrated driver and his skill was being overshadowed by the simple fact that at the time, or, or leading up to that, he was being paired with Schumacher, and that's where all the attention was. But you were saying that you had always thought that, that Nico was an, um, an underrated driver. I, I feel that people don't see him for being as technically excellent as he is because he keeps being in the shadow of, a, of another driver. Now, here's the problem that I have. This is one of those things where we always talk about success in Formula One is so dependent on timing. Mm-hmm. It is, it is, skill gets you to the stage, but timing gets you the world championship. And Nico is unfortunately hampered by being the same age as Lewis Hamilton. Well, that's some of it, but the other is, I think, Nico is a touch less aggressive than Lewis. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't pull things off as skillfully as Lewis does. And, we, and he's not we've as We've beaten intu- that to a pulp. So. Yeah, and he's not as intuitive a driver. I think that's the difference, is there's aggression, and then there's the intuitive piece. I think technically, Nico is a phenomenal driver. No, what Nico's problem is, is it's President Obama. <gasps> oh. Remember? It's all his fault. You're going to beat that to a bloody pulp. I'm I sure be am. I'm annoyed with you by the end of this. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so let's focus on the American team for a minute. Haas. Haas has announced that um, they're going to hold off on making a decision for the their 2017 lineup until after the European season. Do you know why they might be considering that? Well, that's where it ties into your question about a certain Mexican driver. Well, yes. And it would not apparently be Esteban Gutierrez. <laughs> well, there's that. Um, so there's a couple of things that are weighing into Haas's decision-making process. Mm-hmm. One is the will-they-won't-they they marriage with Perez and uh, Force India. Well, according to VJ Malia, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, Perez does have a signed contract with Force India. But not according to Perez. Well, the thing you've got to remember about contracts in F1. They're not even worth the paper they're written on. No, they are worth the amount of money that somebody is willing to pay to get you out of it. (laughs) Exactly. That's the thing with a contract in F1. True. And nothing is for sure and solid, and that's the way this works. So there's a rumor mill going around that Perez may not wish to stay at Force India. If he doesn't stay at Force India, Haas may want to suck him up because he is also a very good driver Mm -hmm. and there's some good pieces with that that would come with that. Well, well, some of the things you got to think about is Perez also came out of the Ferrari driver development program, just like Gutierrez. Mm -hmm. But Perez brings Carlos Slim money in sponsorship, of which there is no sponsorship still on the Haas cars. I think there may be a small Telmex logo. So, maybe. I'm, I'm not even sure that, that that's there. So there's that piece. 
However, that is nothing compared to the fact that two days uh, in the testing period after Silverstone, Haas was testing a young driver that is an American. I wouldn't write too much into that yet. Well, the fact that he did, he's currently a GP3 driver. He's ranked mm-hmm. fourth in GP3. He's doing very, very well. And with that one test session, putting in over 100 laps at Silverstone, he has now qualified for a super license. Uh, my guess is what's going to actually happen with him is that he's going to be left alone for 2017 as well. They may try and get him a seat in the GP2, but I, I don't see him getting promoted next year. Well, promoted to F1 next year. I I could see him moving up, and and if he sees the same level of success that he's currently seeing in GP3 and a team still is enamored with him, I could see maybe a 2018 seat for him. But I don't think he's quite there. I have a sneaking suspicion, and this is completely personal. I know Gene Haas wants to do well in Formula One, and I think he really wants to use this as a springboard for Mm -hmm. increasing Formula One in the United States. I think he is on the lookout for an American driver. I just think he is. Oh, I think he he has to be. Um, I think he has to be. Yeah. So I think that you have people like, um, I don't even know this guy's name because it's not an American name. Um, No, he's an 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 Italian. Italian. Santucci or something. He's a young kid. That's the other thing. He's also a, a teenager. Kid. He's another teenager. So there's that. I mean, it's it's an interesting thing. But for him to start the weekend without a super license and end the weekend with a super license, I think that that says something. Well, el- with eligibility for a super license. Mm-hmm. So l- let's look at where the grid sits right now. Where do they sit? For next year. Okay, we know Mercedes – is set with Lewis and Nico. Ferrari still set with Kimi and Seb. Nothing confirmed at Williams, though. Mm-mm. There is some rumblings that Massa may be losing his seat and Botas may stay. I got to kind of wonder about that, only because if you remember, when Massa lost his seat at Ferrari, the uproar within... Formula One management circles regarding the possibility that Formula One would have a season without a Brazilian driving led to a big push for Massa to get some funding to keep him. Now, we've got Nazar, but Nazar's not confirmed either. Yeah, but there is more potential. There is potential of still having a Brazilian driver. You could pick between the two and let Massa go. Massa is having a really hard season. He's not doing very well. And quite frankly, I think we might be done. Yeah. So the the question over at Williams is, do the rumors about Jensen Button come true? And does he take that seat? Or does... Alex Lynn come over, who has been in the Williams development program for a while. He's been running in GP2 for a while. He drove alongside Susie Wolf as a development as a test and development driver at Williams for quite a few years. Does he get the seat, or does Jensen get the seat? Mm. 
So Red Bull, we know that they are confirmed next year for Daniel Ricciardo and Max Verstappen. Force India theoretically is confirmed for Nico Hulkenberg and Sergio Perez, although Perez is dropping hints that maybe that's not the case. Renault is up in the air with word that that neither Julian Palmer nor Kevin Magnussen are uh, safe. True. But there's also talk that Renault could be a completely different team next year. And the reason I say this is because by the time Renault bought what was formerly the Lotus team. The Endstone team. The Endstone team. um, Much of 2016 had to be basically baked. And so they inherited Mm -hmm. bad design and they inherited stuff. You know, There could be a lot of promise in that team. And and – Truly, there's there's a lot of upside there. And wasn't the talk of Perez possibly looking at Renault as being a works team? There's some of that talk as well, that Perez may go in that direction. Um, but the question is, does that mean Magnuson's seat's in trouble or is Palmer's seat's in trouble? Now, I, I don't think either one of them are necessarily safe. No. As much as I'd like to see Magnuson stay in, I don't think... His performance has been that great, but again, the car hasn't been that great either. So how do you how do you judge that? Right. Um, Toro Rosso, we've got confirmation that Carlos Sainz is staying next year, and we would all lay good dollar bets down that Kvyat is not staying. Yeah, I, I don't see him really cementing his position in the team. No word at Sauber as to who their drivers could be at this point. And we have possibly four drivers that could sit in those seats. Yeah. You know, because she likes to pack four into two. <laughs> so over at McLaren, we've got confirmation of Fernando Alonso mm-hmm. through 2017. But we don't know what the deal is with Jensen. Nope. So we've got Stoffel Van Dorn waiting in the wings. To possibly step up there. Yeah. I don't know. And then we have Manor. Again, not really clear what the future is for them. Now, I do have a question about Manor. Okay. I had been under the impression <clears throat> that Rio Harianto had secured funding um, for the rest of the season. But during today's race in Hungary, the NBC sports team made a comment that this could, in fact, be his last race. Well, what we had heard last week, what we were talking about, was that Rio and his manager said that they were close to getting the deal taken care of to, to secure the seat through the season and that it looked well and, and, and that things looked good for that. We didn't have a, con- a confirmed deal, but that they were confident that it was about to happen or, or was going to happen. But NBC Sports saying that um, that deal may not be as firm as they gave the impression to be, and that there was a strong possibility that uh, Stoffel Van Dorn may take the seat at least for Germany. Right. I don't know about that. The only reason why I don't know about that is because Manners a Mercedes team. Right. And Van Dorn is in the McLaren farm system. Right. Which is a Honda team. 
So, I mean, yeah, it's possible, and, and maybe there's enough money behind Van Dorn between McLaren and Honda and whoever Van Dorn's backers are to buy him that seat at least for a race, but I don't know. It'd be interesting to see what happens. I mean, good news is we don't have to wait longer than four or five more days to find out. I think it's likely that Verline could keep the seat next year. I think his backing is strong enough. From there, I don't know. Right. And I think Mercedes wants Verline to have that seat for a little bit longer. Yeah. Rossi's still there in a development role. But there's also talk that Gene Haas may have some interest in uh, Rossi as well. So maybe if we track him down, we can ask him about that. If, if he's had conversations with the Haas organization about a possible drive for 2017. We will have to uh, see if we can stalk him a little bit. Mind you, I'm going to be over at Max's garage. I, but we haven't heard that Max is having a talk, so. No, no. Yeah, I we just, do want to talk, too. I just want to meet Max. You, you just want to see Max? Okay. So we'll see what happens there. But that's that's what the driver situation looks like now. And, and from – this point in the season to where we were at the start of the season, it's looking a whole lot less dramatic than we were thinking it was going to be. I know. I mean, seriously, talk about we had the promise of a true silly season, and this has really kind of become quite the dud. Well, you know what has gotten silly? The number of times you've tried to blame Formula One on Obama in this one episode? No, uh, no, I'm not blaming Formula One. Just All the, the problems, problems of Formula One are Obama's fault has gotten over the top and silly. But where I was actually going with what has actually become silly is what is or is not or might possibly be happening with the Italian Grand Prix. Oh, my word. This has become an Italian soap opera is what it's become. So the first thing I should mention is that we talked, what was it, a couple of weeks ago about how – it seemed extremely unlikely that Imola could host the Italian Grand Prix because there was some kind of a law on the books somewhere that said that the Italian Grand Prix had to be hosted at Monza. Right. I don't remember whether that was an Italian national or it was a local law, but there was a law that said it is the Italian Grand Prix and it has to be in Monza and Imola can't have it or no other track in Italy can have it, which is why uh, – uh, Imola hosted the San Marino Grand Prix for all but one year, and that was the year that Monza was having renovation work done and wasn't available. Well, then we get word this week that Bernie has inked a deal with Imola, signed and everything, for Imola to run the Italian Grand Prix from 2017. Interesting. Now, the plans can only go ahead if the country's National Sporting Authority gives its approval. Um, and the Automobile Club d'Italia president, Angelo Sticci Damiani, has continued to support Monza's case despite the venue's financial problems. Which, by the way, you know, what, we were told in February that they had figured out a way around these financial problems and a deal would be signed by the end of February. And here we are almost in August and don't have a deal. I know. I know. It, seriously. So there's been talk of exactly how is going to work. 
Now, what we know is that IMLA has signed its, its side of the deal, but Eccleston can't do so until the ACI, the, the Automobile Club d'Italia, formally approves the switch. Representatives of IMLA were at the British Grand Prix to meet with Eccleston and further their case to hold the race. So one of the things that's been tossed out there is an alternating deal, similar to what was being done with Hockenheim and Nürburgring. Um, I don't know if that's going to happen or if IMLA is going to lose it. Um, Sal Salvatico Estense says IMLA, who's he's, uh, one of the managers over at IMLA, says that IMLA has the backing of the regional government. He says Stefano Bonaccini, the president of the region, Emilia Magna, is supporting us. He is a very pragmatic man, and he said if you have the contract, Bernie is happy, and the National Sporting Authority approves this agreement, we support you. IMLA wants to have, be, have an agreement because they need to start preps for a race. Right. Um, yeah, the, rate, the, the track is certified to FIA grade one standards, which is what they need to host a race, but there's other construction and stuff that needs to happen. They say they need to have this settled by December. He, he says that that is the maximum, but the, the best thing they want is a year to promote the race. Well, they need to promote it. That's going to be a big deal. Now, I have an idea that will solve all of their problems. Okay. I'm, I, it just hit me as you were explaining the situation. Okay. And I am stunned that Bernie has not considered this as an option. Okay. I think that the race, the Italian Grand Prix should start in Monza and finish in Imola. As a road race? Yes. Half the laps in Monza, and then they have to exit the course, drive to Imola, oh, and do half it? the laps in Imola. Oh, is that it? So, so, it's, so it's not race from one to the other. It's no, it's go. half the laps, <laughs> drive to Imola, finish the other half of the Bust laps. Bust the fans over and everything. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You'd have to pick your driver that you would leave Monza with. So, you know, if you want to be at the first laps of Imola, you'd have to pick the, the first driver to oh, leave. So, so it would be like a Formula E race. Yeah. Where and, and that that's exactly what they could do. It'd be just like a Formula E race where you'd have to switch cars halfway through the race. Uh -huh. So how quickly could you hop out of the car, run to the helicopter? Because that's really the safest way to do it. It'd be a hell run to the helicopter and have the faster helicopter to get you over to the other track to get the best landing position at the track so you could run over to get into the new car at Imola to finish the race. Right. And what happens if you have to have an engine change halfway through that? Do Weather. You, do you have to then take a penalty at Imola? I mean, think about the possibilities here. Bernie has think, definitely not considered this as an option. Better yet, think about the NBC Sports talking points. You know, Italy's a big country, and sometimes it's raining in one part of the country <laughs> and not in the other part of the country. Oh, they my. would be all over this. Right. They'd have to truck tires back and forth between the two tracks. I mean, this has great possibilities of being the quintessentially best and most convoluted race on the calendar. Yeah. Well, even better, um, Imola says, or not Imola, Monza says that they still believe that they can host the race and they just need to get their deal fit finalized with ACI because if that happens then this whole deal that Bernie signed or, or, or that Imola signed with Bernie because Bernie apparently hasn't signed it yet then that becomes null and void ah. 
See, nobody is considering the bloke in the bird option. Yeah, according you know they could do it in such a way you don't even have to you don't have to do the whole helicopter thing. You could start Monza one weekend and finish Imola the second weekend. Yeah, you definitely could do that, but I think you well, you could run it as double gaps, but then your your problem is you're you're adding a race to the calendar and all the engineering piece and there's too many races already. Remember we've heard that. So Yeah, and they're going uh, to 22 races next year? Maybe. Well, it depends on whether or not we have an Italian Grand Prix now, doesn't it? <laughs> But um, according to Mr. Damiani, um, he says that they have solved all of the problems there were with the territorial entities, including the region of Lombardy, the cities of Milan and Monza, and the Park Authority. He says they've found an agreement between ACI Milan and SIAS, which owns Monza through the ACI, and they're preparing a binding offer to be sent to FOM. He says, at this point, there will be no more political problems, which we heard back in February. Serious. So we'll see where that goes. Um, the vice president of the Lombardi region, Fabrizio Sala, claims his department is providing 5 million euros per year to help close the contract. So, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. But to make it even more money, Imola on Wednesday launched legal action over the Italian Grand Prix bid. <laughs> yeah this has got more twists and turns than the average italian opera yeah so um formula formula imola president uberto salvatico estense told motorsport recently that aci president angelo stitchy damiani was only interested in helping monza duh mm-hmm <laughs> It just depends on Angelo Stitchy Damiani, he said. I think it's a political issue. We have an agreement with Bernie, and we only need the approval of the National Sporting Authority. If in the future there is not an Italian Grand Prix, it is only the problem of Mr. Stitchy Damiani who didn't allow this agreement. Yeah. Just remember, much like Italian operas, it's not over until the fat lady sings. According to Pirelli, for high degradation tires, the fat lady has sung. Now, we have heard this how many times in the last two years? But Pirelli says that for 2017, and they mean it this time, the high deg tires are going away. Really, really, they mean it this time. All right. um, I'm going to have to become a citizen of Missouri and declare that they need to show me. Yeah. But they say for real, for realsies this time, <laughs> there's not going to be high deg tires in 2017. They really mean it. All right. As long as they really, really mean it and not just really mean it. Yeah, we've heard that before. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Formula One is all about one of the thing, big things that Formula One is about is teams pushing the limits and trying to find the ways to use the rules to their advantage. Yes. Not cheat, but use the rules to their advantage or find something that the rules didn't say they couldn't do. Ride the edge of the rules. Well, one of the things that we have known was a potential issue, and well, actually, it's not potential. It's going to be an issue for Lewis Hamilton this season, is the number of engines that he's he's used already. He, he's going to have to take an engine penalty at some point. Correct. 
Lewis, however, has come up with a very interesting idea that he is proposing to the team. It'll be very interesting to see if they do it. What he has suggested is when he needs to do the engine change, that they do not one, but two engines that weekend, thereby pulling a double penalty over the weekend. Now, this sounds like a crazy idea, but the idea is he's going to have to take a 10-place a, a, a grade penalty. Is it 10? I thought it was 20. No. Th- they th- reduced they, it. They changed it, and um, yeah, it, it, it's a 10-place grid penalty. I'm, I'm, I'm just double-checking my, my list of the rules here. I'm sorry. For, I didn't mean to no, that's fine. get you off. But. but based on the tweak that, that has happened, because before it was, they just kept piling on penalty after penalty, which is how we ended up with Jensen Button starting, uh, I think it was... 47. Actually, it was Hungary. It, it was the Hungary race in grid place 42. Correct. Um, even though there was no grid place 42. Now it's just you fall to the back of the grid. So the thought is, take the double engine penalty, fall to the back of the grid. Make up whatever places you can. But at that point, because he's taken a double engine penalty, he has a spare engine. Correct. Because at that point, he can replace the this en- replacement engine number six. He can replace that with number seven. Since it's already been used, he wouldn't get a penalty for it because he's already taken that penalty. So it's, it gives him a spare engine. I think it is completely and totally a wise move maybe he should take a triple penalty and have himself an extra engine there's that you can't go any further than the back of the grid but the thing is how many engines is he going to need to get through the season and even more than that it's not even so much how many does he need to get through the season how many does he need to safely get to a point where he thinks he could capture the title Mm mm-hmm because once he captures the title, they can swap as many engines as they want. It doesn't matter. He's got the title. Now, if this stays as close as it does, that could potentially be an issue towards the end of the season if this you know, runs too as far as Abu Dhabi. And, and that's a very key point. And that's why I'm suggesting that you know maybe having the third as an extra spare might not be such a bad idea. Because you basically figure that he might make it into the points, but he won't make it onto the podium on the race that he has to start at the back of the grid. So if he doesn't have enough of a, a gap to Nico, Nico could take the lead. Mm-hmm. And then he's got to be, you know, he's got to be pushing to make sure he wins the next couple of races. So it'll be very interesting. I think it will be an interesting idea, but I think it's pretty genius when you think about how you can skirt the rules and basically go, well, you didn't tell me I couldn't. Yeah. So do we want to... And McLaren is probably kicking themselves for not thinking of that plan last year. Well, last year it wasn't an option because last year, again, they just kept piling on penalties. And... If you recall, it had gotten so bad that before they finally went and, and realized how ludicrous it was, not only would they put you back in grid place 42, but if you couldn't go back any further, you had to do a time penalty before you could even get your first pit stop. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they they had made it absolutely ridiculous. So should we talk about this week's race or the changes going into the race first? 
or, or the track, I should say, or the changes going into the, the race? Because there were some changes made this week. Um, let's talk changes because okay. I know that you are desperate to talk about radio rules. The, well, there were two changes that were that were implemented this weekend. Um, mixed opinion on one. The other, I think, it, it was a fantastic idea. The first one, which I've got mixed opinions on, is changes to the radio rules. Yeah. The FIA's response to the controversy that happened last week and recognize or, or in in last race, recognizing that possibly that outcome might not be the best thing long term, has made further revisions to the rules to clamp down even further. However, I think, and this is where I actually am in agreement, I think that their punishment system is genius. The punishment makes a little better sense. Basically what they've said is that if you need to go and pass information to a driver that would normally be prohibited, and, and I'm, I'm simplifying this, but would normally be prohibited, you can direct the driver into the pit and while they don't even have to necessarily stop. Just in the pit lane them into is the pit unrestricted lane, radio communication. And you can pass whatever you want to them and tell them whatever they need to have. But they have to come in. So essentially, you have to take a drive through penalty. And as part of that drive through penalty, you can tell the driver whatever the heck they want mm -hmm. or you want. Um, but still, technically, there are restrictions related to – or related to what can be passed while on the track, and a safety-related restriction is not necessarily a banned call. Right. And I say not necessarily because, well, Jensen Button got in trouble for, you know, brake issues and the team talking to him about it, and they gave him a, a, the drive-through. Correct. Now, I think that in today's race— I think that the portion of the call that was the problem wasn't Jensen going, the brakes going all the way to the floor, what can we do about it, and them coming back and saying there's a problem with the hydraulic line. Mm -hmm. Jensen's response to that was, well, I guess that's game over. And nope, no, stay out. No, stay out. We're working on it. And then the following piece is the thing I think that they crossed the line on, which was don't shift gears. Yeah. And the truth of the matter is, I think that if you went down the list, they were probably totally okay up until the point that they told him not to shift gears. Yeah. Which is exactly the thing that got Rossberg the penalty the week before. Mm -hmm. So in that, I don't see as big a gray area. What I like is the fact that we've added a level of strategy and we've allowed permissible conversation in an appropriate location. I get this no coaching thing and I have issues and all of that about some of the definitions of coaching and I get all of that problem. But when you stop for a second and you say, you can't tell the driver anything, you create an unsafe environment. What I love about this concept of Pit lane is open communication. There are no restrictions on what you can tell them in the pit lane. I think that that makes a good hybrid sense to be able to say, come on in, I'm, we'll tell you everything you need to know. Well, you know, it also makes sense because truly are you going to stop a team when 
a car comes in to get certain now granted it's only two seconds but a car comes in to get service you're going to stop the team from having one of the engineer one of the mechanics lean over and yell something at the driver i know i mean <laughs> from, from that perspective yeah it makes sense but the other thing which i thought was very interesting it was notable on the channel four coverage um they were talking a lot obviously about the radio ban and they spoke to Williams, they spoke to Manor, they spoke to Force India, um, and I suspect soon they're going to be speaking to McLaren and to some others. And we've already heard from Mercedes, the general consensus is that the teams are not in support of this ban. And it sounds like more and more drivers are stepping out and saying they're not in support of this ban. And what I found was really interesting. Because in the past, we've, we've been watching the European coverage for a while. We've been watching David Cothard call races for a while and express his opinions for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And in previous years, we have heard David Cothard come out and rail against some of the communication, actually a lot of the communications, that were being made to the drivers. And this week, his position was the exact opposite tell them everything, give them all this information because you're, yes, you're taking some of that complexity away from the driver, but you're allowing the driver to focus on driving the track. And even when you turn around and tell a driver you need to brake five, five meters later, the bottom line is the driver still has to have the courage to go deeper into that corner. And no matter how many times you tell the driver that it's safe that they can go deeper into that corner, the driver makes the final decision. He's the guy behind the wheel who decides if he's going to take that risk. Well, and I loved the fact that Susie made the um, the corollary argument of the teams could tell you to break five meters later. You've still got to be able to do it. Mm -hmm. And it's not just the bravery of doing it. It's the being able to judge where is five meters, being able to actually perform it. Mm -hmm. That is, I mean, you could tell me to break five meters later into a turn and I wouldn't be able to begin to do that. Yeah. Um, but I'm not a Formula One driver. So, I mean, I think that that's the part of it too. Now, you railed against IndyCar and their spotters and, you know, he's on your left, you know, drop now, drop now that level of coaching that happens and I get that and I think that there's a fear of that but I I put the onus on two things one I think that the people that broadcast the coverage should be more selective with what they broadcast not from a standpoint that they should broadcast the driver's comments but I think that if they're not selective they wind up broadcasting things that people don't understand and make it sound like they're not driving the car like they should. Well, I, I think what truly caused all of this were the calls that, that would come up for fuel savings and mm -hmm. directing drivers to lift and coast or turn down an engine or something like that. Because then all of a sudden it was the, oh, my God, they're not driving flat out. And then comes that's to what broke everything. That's Part A of what broke everything, and then part two is you have Fernando Alonso's big mouth of saying Formula One cars are easier to drive than they yep. were when I started. And I think those two things are in concert together as to causing where we are today. And I don't think that we're creating a safer grid. I don't think that we're creating a better driver-led grid. I think that we've got bigger problems on our hands because when you can push the brake pedal to the floor, it's a safety issue, and they need help 
to solve safety issues and keep the cars out there because you know something retirements aren't fun to watch either yeah so the other change that was made and i agree with this for the most part i actually i agree with this a lot i think this is a great idea they should do more of this and put more of them in and that's where they have taken and, and i think the solution in particular w- was brilliant and I had read in a few places some folks had questioned the accuracy of this. But the reality is accuracy isn't a problem. What they have done is they have installed timing loops. It's essentially it's, it's the technology that they use to measure the, the timing and scoring piece. Mm-hmm. They have installed timing loops at two corners of the track. And if you go too far over, you cross over that timing loop and you get a warning. Three times during the race, or, or your third after you, you do it four times, you get three warnings. You do you hit the fourth one, and there's a drive-through penalty for it. Um, if you did it, happen to have done it during qualifying, which wasn't an issue this time around, your team your time w- was deleted. Now, it's actually not an accuracy issue because. Again, this is the same system they use for timing and scoring. So it's the same one that they use to calculate the time, the lap time of a car down to the thousandth of a second. Mm-hmm. If it's that accurate for that system or to figure out whether or not the car is properly lined up in its box on the starting grid, um, all of those various, pe- the sector times, all of those, and if it's accurate enough to do that, it's most definitely accurate enough to figure out whether or not a car went 30 centimeters over the line on a turn well that and the sensor is in the center of the car so it's not just a matter of getting a tire wrong or Mm -hmm. getting just a little bit over the the thing it's it's not it's it's getting the center line of the car Mm -hmm. so at that point you're saying the majority of the car has crossed over the limits of the track and for that alone i'm very pro on this idea now sebastian vettel Mm-hmm. He came out and he came out again vocally about the radio band, but also about this as well. And his feeling was that they need to stop designing tracks where it's faster to cut the corners and to go off the track and take these turns wide than it is to stay on the track. And while, yeah, okay, maybe I could see almost an argument for not designing tracks that are faster if you go off them. Um, the only alternative that I can see, actually, there's two alternatives. One is to put walls in, mm-hmm. which the drivers don't like, or to put a cliff or something like that, or I, I don't know, maybe curbs that shatter the suspension if you go over them. This seems to be a better option. Well, it does no damage to the car. Mm-hmm. It still penalizes the driver. And by the way, Mr. It Vettel. It allows them to get away with it to a point. To a point. But Mr. Vettel, let me point out one thing. I'm going to suggest to you that taking any corners whatsoever is not faster than driving a straight line. Every time you go, you go into a corner, you are losing time. Therefore, it is impossible to create a corner that there is not an advantage for ignoring the corner. Yeah. So get over it. But one of the things that I and, – and I think this is becoming a bigger problem now is a lot of these tracks that have had runoff areas that discouraged um, the drivers from running off the track. You know, the, the, a lot of the reason for these huge paved runoff areas 
or what we have seen this year, these changes in curbs that are not nearly as aggressive, they're not because of Formula One. Hmm. These are changes that the tracks are doing. Monza did it to Peritalta, or, or not Peritalta, to, um, now I don't remember the name of their big curve towards the end of the the, the lap. Uh, Monza did it, brought in a, a big paved area. Um, a lot of these others have made less aggressive curves, including over at Hungaro Ring, so that they can host MotoGP ra- and other motorcycle races. Oh. They need less aggressive curbs. Mm. They need the bigger runoff areas because for a motorcycle to go off into the gravel, it's going to be really painful as opposed to a four-wheeled car. Right. Yeah, I could see that. And to make a track more versatile is beneficial to the track and keeps the track open and around longer. So we need to be supportive that the tracks have to make money in weekends that don't host Formula One. So let's talk about the track and the race. And I got to say, we watched the NBC Sports coverage of the actual race. And unlike what is normal for NBC Sports, we did not hear the all that often, I mean, maybe once, about how the track is behind the Iron Curtain. No, we didn't. Your drinking game failed you. It didn't. But I do have some very interesting stats and information about the track from the folks over at the BBC. Oh, do tell. Well, this year was the 30th year of uh, the Hungaro, uh, of the race being held, the Grand Prix of Hungary and the Hungaro Ring. And it is like only the second uh, track, the second, or it's the... The track with the second longest continuous history of holding a, a race wow. over its history. So the Hungarian Grand Prix has always been there all 30 years and it, it, almost longer than anybody else. Pretty wow. impressive. Um, but some of the other things that they – there was talk about the very first race that was held at the Hungaro Ring. Okay. There were some unique conditions that were put in place because of where the race was and the restrictions of being in the communist country and all of that stuff. One of those was that there was no helicopters at all. There was also no radios Mm. for the first race. Um, The only higher cars that were available for the drivers, so what the drivers drove to the track in and what the drivers were lapping the track in to learn the track, because there weren't simulators back then, were not the typical Western automobiles that you might have seen at the time. They were um, Trabants and Lattice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, keep in mind, 30 years ago was 1986. Right. The wall came down in 89. Right. So it was the the pieces were beginning, um, but it had not. I mean, the real revolution had not really begun, and yet they were able to hold a race behind, truly behind the Iron Curtain. Yes, I mean that was a big deal. And there was no talk about Formula One not going to Hungary when the race was proposed. Hmm. The other thing is that the Hungaro Ring, very notable about the Hungaro Ring, is that it was the first ever track that was purpose designed and built for Formula One racing. Wow. There had never been a track before then that was designed for the singular purpose of Formula One. 
I think that's pretty notable. I think that is, especially given the timing. I mean, you got to realize that in 1986, we were still very much locked into that Cold War. It, mm-hmm. There was not a predicted winner at that point. Um, you know, it was still very much a neck and neck race as to who was going to dominate. So, should we get to our uh, facts about Hungary and the track from Renault? Sure. Okay. So first, some facts about Budapest. Yes. Did you know that the Rubik's Cube was invented by a Hungarian engineer, Imo Rubik? Mr. Rubik originally named the toy as Magic Cube. Milan Batiks holds the record at Guinness as he solved 4,786 Rubik's Cubes within 24 hours. Gee, that was one of my facts from Williams. Thank you very much. Okay, how about this one? Mm-hmm. Budapest has more thermal springs than any other capital city in the world. 70 million liters of thermal water rises to the surface daily. Very cool. Um, do you know that Hungary is completely landlocked and is surrounded by seven other con- countries? Okay. The funicular that takes you up to the Buddha Castle from Clarse Adams Square is more than 140 years old, and it was the second in Europe. The funicular has two cabins called Margit and Gellert. Now, to tie in to the fact that we also have an Olympic year this year, Mm -hmm. Hungary has won gold medals at every Summer Olympic Games it has entered. Oh. It has a total of 167 gold and nearly 500 overall medals. As a random other additional factoid about the Olympic Games, mm-hmm. it appears that Valtteri Bottas's yes. fiance is competing in the Rio Olympics. In her third Olympics. And she is 22. Yeah. I just think that's important to notice. Third Olympics at 22. So 12 years. Yes. She competed in her first first Olympics at 10. 10. She's a swimmer, by the way. That's crazy. That's just crazy. So the, the last Budapest fact I have. After London, Budapest has the oldest underground train system in Europe. The line opened in 1896 in the year when Hungary celebrated its one thousandth anniversary hence the name millennium underground interesting i have two more okay and then i've got about the race and and the track okay um zolt baumgartner okay you know him right oh yeah we go way back yeah at the 2004 hungarian grand prix Mm -hmm. he is the only hungarian to cross the line at his home race he took the checkered flag in 15th place. But still, he was in his home race and the only one. So that's pretty big. Now, speaking of 15th place, the lowest starting position for a winner, 14th. Mm-hmm. Um, highest G-force at turn three for 0.4 seconds is 3.5 G. But the average starting position for the winner is 2.73, which is certainly in line with what we saw this weekend yes they say that even though they say that this is a very hard track to pass in very few pole sitters have ever won this race yeah sort that one out 
Now, Renault, as a constructor, has had just one victory, mm-hmm. and there is a 17% chance of a safety car. And there have been 13 winners from pole. So this week's tire selection was the super soft, the soft, and the medium. Uh, Michael Schumacher in 2004 set the lap record with 1 minute 19.071 seconds. Okay. Um, and in 2015, there were 32 overtakes. So Renault, as both a constructor and an engine supplier, up until this weekend, had 98 starts, 8 wins, 27 podiums, 10 poles, 11 fastest laps, and 407 total points. And did you have information about Williams and... Uh, when they when Nigel Mansell secured his championship, I was going there. <laughs> okay, I will let you do that because Renault has it here as well because he was driving a Williams Renault. He was. Nigel Mansell won his only world championship in 1992 at the Hungaro Ring with five races to spare. Yeah, he won the first five races and finished second in Monaco. Further wins in France, Britain, and Germany made the title a formality. It took retirements ahead of him, collisions, and a good dose of good luck, but the Britain eventually crossed the line some 40 seconds behind winner Senna, taking his and Renault's first-ever world title. There you go. So, qualifying was a mess. You know, I don't mind incident strewn qualifying i really don't it keeps things interesting it keeps things on your toes but q1 seemed to be ridiculous well q1 was the qualifying session that never ended because in the length of time that it physically took to get through q1 is normally the length of time it takes to get through the entire qualifying session because it was wet and it kept raining now three red flags mm -hmm. Two yellow flags. I think that well, both the yellows became... were tied into the red. So, and the session still ended a minute with a minute eighteen left because they just couldn't get any more cars out. You couldn't complete the lap. Well, there was a stretch that Rio Harianto might not have even been able. He would have been completely disqualified because he had fallen out of the hundred and seven percent rule. Right, but. More than that, it wasn't just Rio. We knew Rio was an issue, but also in trouble based on their qualifying times. Now, they would have reverted to their their practice times, and they probably would have survived from there. Um, but both Red Bulls, Nico Hulkenberg, Sergio Perez, and Valtteri Bottas all faced the, pro- the possibility of being demoted after failing to progress from Q1 within 107% of the fastest time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the first red flag had both Mercedes not progressing from Q1. Not only that, but I believe uh, Lewis's time was outside 107% as well. Yes, it was. Which has led to the question of, is there really a need for this rule anymore? <laughs> Truly. Um, there, there hasn't been a, a car that's been reg- relegated uh, due to the 107% rule, I believe, since 2010. Mm-hmm. 2010 or 2011. Um, and when it happened, it was fairly common 
because the new teams that were that had hit the grid that year were commonly five seconds behind on most tracks, but on the real power-hungry tracks, they were 10 seconds down a lap. Yeah, and that does cause danger on the track, and so that was one of the rules. The, the teams easy. were calling them rolling chicanes. Right. Um, things moved past it. We finally got out of that. However, Fernando Alonso kept with tradition— because he's been doing this since since about 2007, and once again managed to screw Lewis Hamilton out of a pole position. Exactly. <laughs> Seriously. So there was a yellow flag in the last laps of Q3 that Lewis was on an incredibly blistering lap, um, and he had to lift in the second sector for the yellow flag because Fernando Alonso spun in front of him. And Fernando says he's not even sure why he spun. Yeah, it just, just went. Because that's what Lewis he does. Was there. <laughs> Lewis was there. Lewis was there. <laughs> um, and Nico was able to pull pole position um, by not having to, because the yellow flag had been lifted by that point, well, or so we thought. This is, this is what, we're try- what I'm trying to understand, Okay. Nico did not lift. Mm-hmm. He continued all, and, and we never saw video of when things were lifted, when, when when the yellow flag was retracted, when green flags came out. We never saw any of that stuff, so we never got a clear understanding. But what it appears to have happened was that Nico hit the sector after the yellow flag was lifted. Thereby, he did not need to go and slow down and could continue at the faster pace and giving him the chance to set the time. However, it took the steward the stewards investigated and it took them three hours to come up with a conclusion. I know. And Lewis came out and said that the fact that Nico didn't get a um, get a penalty on it spoke very poorly for the sport. But the question I have is how did they not know and how did it have to take three hours to make that determination? Again, we know for, I mean, you open up the F1 app, you know that the FIA and the stewards and the marshals know exactly where those cars are on the track mm-hmm. with very clear precision. They had to have known when that flag was lifted. They had to know what was being shown and when it was being shown and where it was being shown. And they had all the video of where the car was. How did they not know? How did they need? Why did they need three hours to make that determination? I don't know for sure, but I have a theory. Okay. First, um, I have a feeling that the yellow flag was lifted while Nico was in the second sector. That he entered the second sector under the yellow flag, but left the second sector, which is where the flag was, mm-hmm. under a green flag. Well, it, it, it's so based on question, where the marshal posts are, right? You right. Know. And the question before the house is probably going to be. Was he lifted during the period of time that there was a yellow flag? And did he gain the speed? I'm betting that the question is, could he have gained all of the speed while he was still in that sector after the yellow flag was lifted? And I think that's the debate. Because I think he was like the only person that was able to set a faster time. So the question was, when did the yellow flag get lifted and did he have enough time in the second sector? Because remember the rules are written in such a way that you cannot gain time in the second in the right. sector under the yellow flag. 
But he came in having a slower first sector. Yes. So he had to have gained a time in the second sector and mm-hmm. in the third sector. So, I mean, there's a, a definite question. I have this a question. It doesn't end up mattering a hill of beans. Now let's go back. True. There are 30 races that have been run at the Hungaro Ring. Only 13 of those races have been won from pole. Therefore, less than half the races are won from the pole position. Yep. It didn't give Nico a whole big advantage. No, especially with we, – we have heard that Lewis has been working on his starts. His starts have been dismal. Um, he got off pretty well this time. Daniel Ricardo got off even better than both Mercedes, and it looked like uh, Daniel may have had a chance to, to really notch some points and, and take the Mercedes down a peg. It didn't work out that way. Came pretty close. I mean, he ended up in third. No. What I'm going to say is that not only did Lewis get off very, very well, there is, I, I will tell you why fewer people win from pole at the Hungaro ring than win from second. The first turn, mm. you're, this person in second is on the inside. Well, we have that a lot, but this doesn't have a particularly long run to that turn. Right. So you have the opportunity to at least get alongside. Yeah the person that was in first, and therefore take the tighter inside line, which is exactly what Lewis did. Mm -hmm. He took an incredibly tight inside line, which positioned him perfectly to take the lead. Ricardo took around, you know, went to the outside of Nico, beating Nico into turn one, but lost it into turn two as Nico was able to then overtake. We then had a Mercedes 1-2 that was pretty much the way the – the race ran for the entire balance. Now, overall, at least from the coverage we saw, and we watched NBC Sports coverage this morning, I, I think, well, it can't, it aired as a relatively dull race. I'm not, and I don't blame Mercedes, or, or excuse me, I don't blame NBC Sports for this. I blame the world feed. I think there was more action going on up and down the grid than the world feed focused on. They seem to be very focused and very hung up on the Raikkonen-Verstappen battle to the detriment um, of, detriment of other everything else that was happening. And it sounded like there were about three other battles that were going on that were of interest, but for some reason they did not want to look at them. Right. And I think we lost a lot. Now, that being said, we had to rely on Lee Diffie trying to tell us stuff. And once again, there were several points where I was wondering what race Lee Diffie was watching because the numbers on screen didn't seem to match what he was saying. So, yeah, I don't know. Michael is convinced that Lee does not look at the right spot on his screen. Now, one of the the questions that came out was, Lewis and his pace, mm-hmm. and whether or not he was struggling. He sure made it sound like on the radio that he was struggling, and Will Buxton kind of questioned that, especially after uh, Lewis got told that if he didn't pick up the pace, he was going to uh, lose his opportunity to pit first, at which point all of a sudden his pace picked up. Lewis came out after the race, interestingly, and said that he felt pretty comfortable throughout the race and was actually controlling his pace throughout it yep yeah which quite frankly i believe is yet another piece where lewis is psycho psychologically better 
than Nico because he plays these mind games with Nico and Nico does not handle them very well. But Nico fought hard to to hold on to second and Will Buxton I think called it beautifully that Lewis was pushing Nico back into the race mm-hmm. with the Red Bulls. Now, what Lewis had to say, he said, there was never a moment when I felt I was going to lose it. This is a race where you don't need a five or 10 second gap. I need to do what I just need to do, even if we win by a tenth of a second. I was just managing that gap of about two seconds, which it certainly looks like he was. Mm -hmm. When I needed some time, I put my engine where it needed to be, and I kept the time. Now, when he was asked why he seemed to struggle with his pace, Lewis said, compared to practice, we knew the temperature was a lot higher. I think the temperature was about 43 degrees, and this is Celsius. Um, The track temperature, so today was a 53. So it's an unknown how long these tires are going to last. So once I got into the lead, I was able to manage my tires, my car, and manage the gap and react only when I needed to. For sure, the back markers caused a bit of trouble towards the end. Generally, I was able to keep the buffer. There was one moment I thought all race I had made a mistake, and then I locked up my wheels and went slightly wide, and Nico all of a sudden on my tail. Wasn't an exciting moment, that, but then got my head down and increased the lead. Yeah. But that was really it. There, there, it was not really an exciting race. Um, I think there were a couple of moments in the Verstappen-Reichenen battle that appeared to maybe be a little questionable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think Kimmy may have exaggerated a few things himself. And I don't know what the heck Verstappen was doing on the radio saying Kimmy keeps running off the track. <laughs> when Kimmy was behind him, exactly how was max aware of that and what the hell was max doing watching that i have no idea (laughs) no idea but i think it is very interesting and i think it's a definite pull to how red bull has improved this year that red bull was both red bulls were able to hold off both ferraris for the entire race yeah i think that's important ricardo and vettel were fighting raikkonen and verstappen were fighting and they held them off, and there was a there was a lot of action that was down further in the track in the pack two, down at around ninth. There was some interesting things going on. Um, we didn't see a whole lot of that though. But I think that kind of sums it up, at least from what we've seen so far this week. Well, there's one big thing that we have to talk about really quick. Is that that Lewis is leading, or that Obama caused Nico to lose? Lewis is now leading in the world oh, championship. Okay. I, I just want to know which it was. <laughs> it's not Obama's fault. Oh, okay. Lewis is now leading. Well, I don't know. There were all those banners for Kimmy for president that the FI, that the world feed seemed to be honing in on. Yeah, I want to know president of what? Uh, I believe it's um, Finland. Okay. In my head, I just broke out into the Finland song by Monty Python. And on that, you know, what are your thoughts on these revised radio rules? Are they a better option, or are they just as stupid as the earlier ones? Do you like the the, the, the timing loops to start enforcing track limits, or should we just put up walls and t- tell Sebastian Vettel to, to suck it up and deal with it? You know, let us know either on the Facebook page, and we saw we got Phil's comments there. He agrees with us that the— they're bad and oh by the way i should also call out 
uh, Phil remembering, and, and of course, since this is Haas and they come from North Carolina, that maybe Haas needed some Lowe's extension cords to keep the power on at, at Silverstone. I, I think it was a voltage conversion, actually. I personally love the fact that Phil remembers the first podcast that we ever put out <laughs> and my ongoing joke about shoreside power being a Lowe's extension cord. That makes me warm and fuzzy on the but inside. But again, this is Haas this is an American team. They built their stuff in the plant over in uh, North Carolina and they brought it to England and England uses a different voltage. I bet you it was a voltage issue. Well, maybe the little connector that they used to the do adapters conversion. Broke. The adapter. That's what it was. It was a voltage out. converter. Yeah. That's all it was. But uh, yeah, remember you can find us over on Stitcher or apparently now over in the Google Play Music Store and on iTunes. Um, and tell your friends, tell your family that they should listen to the show, but not next week because we're going to be over at uh, the Honda Indy 200. So I would suggest that you follow us on the Facebook, on the Book of Faces. Um, friend face friend face all of those possible social media outlets maybe we will actually do some twittering or tweets or tweetering yeah um we'll look at the twitter on on the friend twitter uh something like that <laughs> whatever whatever type of social media that you prefer to follow us Catch in just on the interwebs yes we will try to post um i will say that the connection is not the best um at the mid-ohio track but it occasionally has some moments We'll try to catch them and shoot up some uh, pictures of where we are on the track. Um, and who we're with. Who we're with. And if I get my way, I will have a picture with Max Chilton. And on that, we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay.